Welcome to Offscreen. Let's get cinematic. And boy, is it good to be back. It feels like an age when we take a week off, doesn't it, Van? <laughs> <laughs> it does, doesn't it? It's because you skip that week. And it's also because of just the nature of movies and the fact that they last for weeks and weeks. Like, we obviously missed the two movies that we're going to review this week. And we've come back to a week that's got nothing out. So it just seems like those two movies are still in their release week as well. Even though, you know, people have been able to see them a week. We saw them a week ago. It's been an interesting time. I think. I think some would say that we took a strategically planned holiday. <laughs> <laughs> quite, quite strategic, quite strategic indeed. Yes, indeed. But do you know what? You're not scrimping and saving on this one because we are, we're going to kick off the show with a big film, a big, a, let, let me just tell you this, it is the most successful pandemic era movie so far. Okay, what are is, we is, is that what it is now? Is it officially yeah. the most successful? Because because I've there's some I know there's something about the massive box office taking that this has pulled in, despite the fact that it is available on streaming simultaneously, and it, it's apparently making the argument for streaming works in tandem with cinemas. I think it's the most successful movie for HBO Max at the moment. Mm. So. Um, and also with box offices opening and uh, cinemas opening in certain countries around the world, obviously LA most recently opened up. Um, it's good to see people loving going back to the cinema. And I have to say, you're going to talk us through this, but I have to say, this is the movie that when I watched it, I really wished I was in the cinema to see it. Um, what am I talking about? Of course, we're talking about Godzilla versus Kong. Yeah, Godzilla versus Kong, which is the fourth instalment in the MonsterVerse series, that uh, Legendary's MonsterVerse series, I think is the official term that we're giving this now, which began in 2014 with Gareth Edwards's uh, Godzilla, which starred uh, Brian Cranston, Aaron Taylor-Johnson, Elizabeth Olsen, uh, continued through to Kong Skull Island in, I think, 2017, 2016, I think. I think, uh, yeah. By Jordan Voigt Roberts, star the likes of John Goodman, Samuel L. Jackson, Toby Cabell, people like that, um, which was very, very good. I still think is that the best of, of any of these, I think, is, is Kong Skull Island. We then got Godzilla King of the Monsters, I think, two years ago, might have been 2018 or 2019, which was uh, fine and a very well made film, but I think was a bit too rooted, a bit inaccessible, a bit rooted in its own monster mythology, but, but visually gorgeous. Mm. Now we've got the fourth installment, and this works as a sequel to both the Godzilla timeline and the uh, and Kong Skull Island takes place 40 years I think after Kong Skull Island and sees Godzilla having become king of the monsters having become the alpha protector of earth against all other monsters suddenly turning on the human race, suddenly seemingly attacking human facilities. Um, one of which um, one of which has, happens to belong to this mysterious Apex Corporation. Now, the Apex Corporation have a theory that in order to get Godzilla in line, all you would need is a power source from the hollow earth from which he and Kong both come from. And that all of these titans are naturally drawn towards this power source. So they get Kong, stick him on the boat, and try to use him as a guide to the power source on the hollow earth. But of course, the reason they've kept Godzilla in hiding for 40 odd years is because if two Titans are out there in the wild, they're gonna throw down. Did we change course? No, we're nowhere near the areas you flag. Well, it looks like he's coming for us anyway. He's not coming for us. Him? Then dump him, dump the monkey. How about we throw you up instead, huh? We have to release him. We lose Kong, the mission is over. He's a sitting duck out there. We have to let him protect himself and us. I read an interesting article um, about, you know, obviously everyone was like, is Tenet the film to save cinemas? And 
No, it wasn't. Uh, no, no, it was not. It was bloody Godzilla and Kong, wasn't it? Yeah, because the thing is, so here in the UK, had this come out in the cinemas on a normal year, it kind of would have done a mid-range box office. Uh, totally, yeah. You know, yeah. This rating. this might have pulled this might have pulled in maybe sixty million quid over the course of its entire UK box office run. Yeah, exactly. However, the appetite for escapism, mm. the need to just lose yourself and immerse yourself in something that is a fantasy. You know, this is like part of a 36-film franchise of Godzilla. It's been going <laughs> since 1954, right? We needed this. And you oh, know what? Did. As I said earlier, I watched it, and God did I wish I was in the cinema seeing this. I will say that there is a, there is a very visceral old-school uh, you know, box office blockbuster popcorn multi, uh, munching multiplex kind of enjoyment to this. It is a no-holds-barred thrill ride it, mm. it has no it has no illusions whatsoever about needing to stand toe to toe with for instance the likes of tenant it doesn't need to make its intellectual bones there's no need for that it's not here for that purpose it's here to entertain you do you do you need a rational explanation for the things that are going on sure here's some star trek style techno babble where the, the 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 magnetic flow of the the coil inverter has has collapsed inwards uh, the tachyons are rupturing the the space time Whatever you need, it's there. There's this enough Doctor Who level technobabble in there if you need it. It's not here for that. It's here for Monkey Smack Lizard. That is the movie. I'm yeah. all good about that. It, it makes no bones about being impartial. The movie clearly prefers Kong, which is fine, and it makes complete sense because Kong is an American uh, construct, whereas you know Godzilla is more of a Japanese one. So the idea of that makes sense. Even the heavy-handed visual symbolism of let's take a Native American young girl and have her endorse our American mascot because we're really not hammering home the subtlety of this loud enough. By the way, here's a giant lizard. We're going to punch him in the face with the monkey hand. I am good with that for an hour, for like two hours and five minutes. All good. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm with you. And in fact, when we looked at the human stories, like three or four different um, threads of human stories, I was a bit kind of like, get on with it because I want to go yeah. back to Kong and Godzilla fighting. That's it, isn't it? Now, there's always been the argument that the human characters are the, are the least interesting thing. Now, in this case, I quite like the Kong side of the human characters. Mm. Like, yeah. that's all good. But the Godzilla side of it, which is basically Millie Bobby Brown, yeah. Julian Dennison, oh, and by the way, Julian Dennison, puberty glow up. Oof. <laughs> oh my God. You give that kid Five years. Oh, my God. Five years, he's going to be like Brooklyn Beckham. It's going to be unreal. Batten through like he's one of the Jonas Brothers. He's going to be just, just crowds of women around this kid in about five years' time. You watch. Uh, who else you got? Brian Tyree Henry, who's in there as a podcast host, because all these movies got to have that now. Carl Chandler, I checked, has... I think one full scene yeah, and, two, and two two second unit scenes and apparently because he shares one of them with Lance Reddick who was in Godzilla King of the Monsters and people were asking why have you gotten these people back to do nothing yeah exactly. and the answer is they filmed a lot and cut it apparently that that's what happened okay well that's fine but do you know what it was nice to see him pop up I would have liked yeah. it to have been positioned more as a cameo but um, it was but, do you know what that stuff I actually the, the, the least interesting part for me was the Billy Bo uh, Millie Bobby Brown 
thread. Um, I'm I say, if there was a Billy Bob, if there was yeah, a Billy Bob Thornton one in yeah. there, I was going to be all about that as well. Exactly. However, I do think that the Kong story, for mm. whatever political reasons that they put it in, it worked, right? And you know, it it, it, it filled the gaps where it needed to. Mm. But I'm, you know, I'm from I'm from Asian descent. I, I'm all Gajira, you know. <laughs> I was like, bring it back. <laughs> I will say the, the the shared universe mentality of it and the way that they do explain certain things about it, like and, and they do tie it into the big bad from the last movie, for instance. I thought was quite well done. Uh, Adam Wingard and Simon Barrett, by the way, script works for me. Like I say, ticks all the boxes it needs to. The film, incidentally, absolute masterclass in box ticking, contemporary geek infused blockbuster cinema. Um, but I will say as well, I think uh, not only does uh, Adam Wingard do a spectacular job shooting this uh, Junkie XL on the score I like that as well but I also like the way this is staged which involves a lot of ground level uh, footage of you know the mm. fights between Godzilla and Kong they're not absent of here's what's happening on the ground which is something you really need it's the thing that made Pacific Rim for instance for me these movies work best when you have that tactile here's what it's like to be you know as the size of their toe yeah. while they're doing this i like that very much and just to wrap this up if you are as excited about godzilla versus kong as, as clearly van and i have been fans of it um adam wingard is stepping up to direct thundercats <laughs> so in terms yeah. of his thundercats <laughs> it's, so, it's so exciting <laughs> i mean thundercats and face off too that guy has got my ideal career but yeah. anyway so let's 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 go on to someone else whose whose films i'm usually a fan of and, and this one's not going to quite work out we have to be very quick on this one let's talk about chaos walking which came out in the second as well uh this stars tom holland daisy ridley mads mickelson demian Bashir. uh this is based on patrick ness's uh, uh novel i forget the name of it is the dagger something about the dagger um in which it's set several hundred years in the future. All the women have died out, and the surviving men have like an aura around their heads that projects a visual image of their thoughts. So you can literally see what they're thinking. See and hear. And it's called The Noise. Tom Holland's been raised in this society. He's sort of the heir apparent to a local town mayor, for instance, played by Mads Mikkelsen, very extravagant Dennis Hopper-like role that he's playing. Uh, he happens upon a crashed from a local, from a nearby space observatory, Daisy Ridley who's the first woman any of these guys have seen in years, and he must protect her from the various elements of this strange new world. Whoa! Stop! Don't come any closer. Girl. Girl. It's a girl. Girl. Oh my god. Where are you from? You're a girl. No noise. You from Earth? Girl! Dave! Shut up, Todd. Sorry. I'm sorry. I've just never... Never seen a girl before. Are you from Earth? You're really pretty. Yellow hair. Found I found her! I found her! Wait, 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 wait! It's not terribly interesting, this one. It is a bit of a mess. It was allegedly test-screened and received very, very poorly, then taken away for reshoots. Uh, Daisy Ridley has this atrociously poorly done wig that seems to uh, seems to get worse at different stages throughout the movie. So you do seem to get a vague visual hint as to what's new and what's not. Holland, I think, is perfectly fine in it, in that same way that Tom Holland seems to keep being very fine in movies that are otherwise quite sucky. So you think about... Like Cherry, for instance, recently, in which Tom Holland, very good. The mm-hmm. movie, not so. Movie- Chaos Walking, same thing. Yeah, I was going to say about Cherry, it's 40 minutes too long. Doesn't need to yeah. be drawn out. 
the thing that's dragging this one uh, down as well, I mean, Doug Lyman directing, you know, Born Identity, Swingers, uh, uh, Edge of Tomorrow, Doug Lyman. I, Mr. and Mrs. Smith, Doug Lyman. Yeah. I love Doug Lyman. Doug Lyman can make it a, a gorgeous, coherent-looking film. This just looks grey and it's an uninteresting. It's a slog. The whole thing looks like, if you told me that this had been filmed for, say, $10 million in a Vancouver quarry, I'd believe you. No matter how, no matter who turns up in, like you can get Kurt Sutter to turn up in this and David Oyelowo, all you like. You're never going to convince me this wasn't shot on a TV budget in a Vancouver quarry because that's literally what there are episodes of Arrow that are that I know are shot in a Vancouver quarry that look more inherently cinematic than this. The, the closest thing it's got to an action beat is a whitewater rafting sequence. The whole thing is just an absolute shambles. I would avoid it like the plague. They quite clearly would like to. Yeah, so there we go. So we're, we're big <laughs> thumbs up for Godzilla vs. Kong. And as you can probably tell, Van is a big thumbs down for Chaos Walking. <laughs> It's just this, it's because it's such a slight, it's the fact that it's called chaos walking and it feels like walking would be an improvement in pace. That would imply that it's going somewhere. It's more like chaos drunkenly stumbling or chaos shuffling would be a better term, I think. Well, in that case, I'm going to stop you right there because I feel a rant coming on and I feel early (laughs) in the show for that. So we're going to, we're going to take a little bit of a break and we'll be back with movies on TV and I will calm Van down in the meantime. Welcome back to Off Screen. Now we're keeping you on the couch for some cinematic goodness on Freeview for the next week. And we're going to be starting Saturday night, tomorrow night, the 10th of April on ITV. Oh, I've made the font really small. I can barely see. I have to zoom in. Oh, I'm getting old. So ITV at 10.45 p.m. It's a movie I adore. It is Christopher Nolan's... Was this 2010, I want to say, Inception? Was it was Inception 2010 it or 2011? Let me, let me have a quick look. It is... Da, 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 2010, I think, right. On the I next. think 2010. I think Nolan takes two years between his films and they're usually odd numbers, I think. I think that's how it works with him. But uh, <laughs> So Dunkirk, for instance, was 19 and then uh, Tenet was, was, was 21. No, it wasn't. No, it was 20. Yeah. So Dunkirk was Dunkirk 18 there. I'm misremembering. But just beside the point, anyway, so Inception is, you know, the movie that effectively Tenet then, you know, Xeroxes and tries to do again. It follows uh, Leonardo DiCaprio as Cobb. I think he's actually Don Cobb, isn't he? Because Nolan puts a lot of thought into his uh, his character-based it was like Miami Vice or something, doesn't it? If you call him Don Cobb. <laughs> well, Cobb and Tubbs sounds like a movie, doesn't it? Yeah. But uh, so he's Cobb. He is the the heist squad leader hired by Ken Watanabe to basically hack into Killian Murphy's brain to incept an idea that when his dying father bequeaths him his company, he will dissolve it and sell it all to uh, you know Ken Watanabe's uh, nefarious. Uh, scheming. However, before they can get to that, they have to find an opportunity during which they can hack into said brain. He hasn't got any surgery scheduled, no dental, nothing. Wasn't well, he supposed to have a knee operation? Nothing. Nothing that I'll put him under for anyway. We need, we need at least a good 10 hours. Sydney to Los Angeles. One of the longest flights in the world. He makes it every two weeks. Well, he must be flying private then. Not if they were unexpected to maintenance with this plane. Could have to be a 747. Why is that? It's so on a 747, the pilot's up top, the first class cabin's in the nose, so no one would walk through. But you'd have to buy out the entire cabin and the first class flight attendant. 
I bought the airline. It's in Nita. Uh, I think I've said this to you before. Confession. I've not seen the ending of Inception. <laughs> because, what? Because when I went the one time back in 2010 when I went to see this at the cinema, my park, because mm-hmm. it's two hours and 42 minutes long, my parking is, yes. ran out. And therefore, ah. just before the end, I had to go and collect the car. So I've never seen the ending of this. But to be oh honest, my God. I spent so long trying to work out what the hell was going on anyway that I think I'd be none the wiser. So maybe it's worth a rewatch. Because um, it's, it's on a, you know, look, two hours, 42 minutes is a long time to be watching at 10.45 at night. But mm. it's a Saturday night, so I think it's it's kind of it's a good Saturday night movie, isn't it? It is. It's worth noting as well. You know, as always, you could just go on Just Watch uh, and see if this is available on a streaming platform that you happen to, to subscribe to. I think. I think offhand, I think Inception might be on uh, Amazon Prime uh, because I rewatched it recently when uh, when Tenet came out and we were doing the reviews. I thought I'll, I'll rewatch Inception because I've not seen it for time. And uh, actually, I will find I liked the film more when I rewatched this past year than uh-huh. I did when it when it came out. I think it's it's aged very well. I think the craftsmanship of it does hold up significantly. I think it's just the right level of uh, Christopher Nolan pretentiousness. Like it's just enough. Like it's it's at the very threshold just before it tips over into full blown you know Tenet. fart sniffing. Yeah, effectively. Yeah, Ten- that, that we we said the same thing but with different terms there. That's what that was. Yeah, but. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think it's worth checking. Also, we tend to forget this, but this was, I think, the first movie in which we came out going, oh, that Tom Hardy, he's a bit of a scene stealer, isn't he? Yeah, God, think about that back in 2010. That's crazy. But look, great film. Sure, the ending's just as good. Um, Saturday night, 10.45 on ITV if you want to stay up late and watch it. Now, Sunday, at a more reasonable time of 6.45pm on Film 4, because Film 4 brings you the best of the movies, um... This is something that I have to say is just act amazing. It is uh, Pitch Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> it's Pitch Perfect 2. Um, it's available for you. Where the Barden Bellas, the acapella group that we all love, strive mm. to resurrect their image after a disastrous stroke brilliant performance. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, they basically come up against international competition. And you know what? It takes all of the elements that we love from the original movie it doesn't overdo it too much so the sequel works really well unfortunately when we go on to the trilogy of this mm. that one the third installment doesn't quite have the same level of, of impact but this one's really good I think I think they do decrease I think the Pitch Perfect trilogy decreases in quality with each film but the second one is still pretty decent the second yeah. one is the one that introduces Haley Steinfeld's character yeah. to the group isn't it yeah yeah, and you know what? That girl can sing. Um, yeah, it turns out she can. She can. Let's hope she can shoot a bow and arrow as well, because we've got her in the Marvel verse to look forward to next. Oh as well. yeah, yeah, her and every other A-list actor that's out there. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but you know what? I'm I'm a massive fan of this franchise. I think it's so tongue in cheek. It's so brilliant. And you know, even if it decreases a little bit in in Pitch Perfect too. It doesn't mm. matter because it's still so enjoyable. I agree. Also, Pitch Perfect too had what we I think what we now refer to, or what Scott Mendelson famously referred to as the Austin Powers effect. I'm not sure if it became a recognised term, but I think he yeah he, he uses so. it a lot. Which is you have a, a relative a moderate hit 
theatrically with this out of nowhere, you know, IP that then by the time you get to a sequel, because the first one has made so much money through word of mouth and the the zeitgeist on video, but it's it's when the video release has proven so successful that that then leads to a much more front-loaded sequel. Austin Powers very famously did this because he went from a movie that was a very moderate hit to a hundred million dollar opening weekend sequel kind of a thing and pitch perfect 2 had that effect it was also because elizabeth banks had stepped in to direct the sequel mm-hmm. pretty much as, a, as an 11th hour choice it wasn't something she'd intended to do she had co-written uh, the first one i think and then taken over directing the sequel just on the off chance and the results were quite impressive it turned her into an a-list director she went on to do charlie's angels she's got more coming she's got quite a number of quite high profile projects coming what's the one with the bear the cocaine bear the cocaine that she's bear. yeah which we're really excited about because it's like truth is stranger than fiction and that story we can't wait to be told so oh yeah exactly um, yeah that was some news that broke a couple of weeks ago wasn't it but um yeah i'm with you and like i think she does a great job in this i think you know anna kendrick fantastic in this all of the barden bellas you know mm. they know what kind of film this is and they know how to play it and so it really, really works. So, guys, it's a great Sunday afternoon stroke early evening movie. It's on film. It's four. a well-timed one as well, isn't it? For six forty-five. I did. I I forget the Pitch Perfect movies are this sort of child-friendly that they actually can show them at six forty-five on a Sunday afternoon. So, cool no tea-time movie. Needed. Yeah, no watershed yeah. needed. So, uh, yeah, six forty-five Sunday. Enjoy that. But let's talk about kicking off your Monday with. Well, I, if, if only we had video, we could do the moves. <laughs> but um, it is Steve Martin, Martin Short, and Chevy Chase. It is Chevy Chase, yeah. The Three Amigos. Now, who doesn't love the Three Amigos? That this is obviously most the, the, the plot. Obviously, is a comedic riff on the Seven Samurai. Yeah. In this, in this case, it's uh, you know it's the archetypical Seven Samurai plot. You have the small town being preyed upon by the bandits. Turns to the outside mercenaries, employs them to safeguard the town from the bandits. Now, that's the original you know archetypical format. Three Amigos is, I think, the first time I can remember. This is the earliest iteration that I can remember of someone inverting that slightly for comedic purposes where the mercenaries hired are in fact phony mercenaries and in this case they are TV actors who have played the mercenaries and are mistaken for actually being those so this gets repeated obviously in Galaxy Quest sort of 20 years not 20 15 15 years down the line where you have aliens doing the same thing of basically abducting a version of you know Leonard Nimoy and William Shatner for instance like thinking their Captain Kirk and Spock, but you know it's Tim Allen and and uh, Alan Rickman playing sort of fictionalized versions. But this is this is the, the the mercenaries hired to protect the small Mexican town from the bandits, and of course not being up to the task. It's basically a bug's life with people. It is, it is, it really is. And do you know what? This is a movie that, as a kid, I watched again and again and again. I absolutely love this. I was there was a point where I could really quote it very very well. <laughs> Um, and the fact is, is that I haven't looked at this for a good 20 years. Um, I'm excited to watch it again, but I still remember the moves. I still remember who's in it. You know, it, it's kind of etched into your brain, the mariachi outfits that they're wearing. It's brilliant. Um, this is good old fashioned fun. And actually our list for what's on TV, uh, what's on 
what what movies are on TV this week are very much going back to the old school a little bit. There's very, very few apart from Pitch Perfect and Inception that are beyond 2005 at the very latest. Maybe, yeah, maybe our next one uh, when we come back is going to, it's a little bit later. But to be honest, it's, it's the oldies that hold up are still the goodies. And this is a great example of it. And you can't go wrong with three absolute stalwarts of comedians that are just at their absolute top of their game. Well, that's it as well. And also, this comes from that era in which these sort of there's a sort of tenuous Saturday Night Live connection to the upper mainstream of, of comedians. So you've got your Dan Aykroyd, your Chevy Chases, mm. your Bill Murray's, your Steve Martins, your Martin Shorts. And it was all about who was going to cross over with whom yeah. next. So you had Chevy Chase had gone and done Spies Like Us with Dan Aykroyd. And obviously, we, you and I, of all people, know that Steve Martin and Martin Short wind up teaming up twice more twice. to go on to do the Father of bride movies and and it's about it's about you know mashing up the, the different coordinations of this talent like is this the one that's going to have John Candy in it is this the one where Richard Pryor is going to turn up does Mel Brooks or Gene Wilder get a cameo in this one and I, I miss this era of comedy and like yeah. you say the the oldies th- those are the classics that, that excitement that you get around wondering who's going to crop up in these can- <laughs> it's not being able to be replicated really you kind of get it a little bit with like the Avengers and everything because you, you're like yeah. but it all gets announced too early and what I loved about these was the element of surprise um, Ryan Reynolds when he pops up in a few movies yes does- Ryan Reynolds does it a lot doesn't yeah. he Ryan Reynolds yeah. loves to turn up in other people's things yeah and, and I think that's the only person I can think of that actually sort of maintains that level from a comedic factor you know I had that with the, a certain African American Marvel actor appearing in uh, the first episode of Falcon and Winter Soldier if you've not seen it just turned up and I was like what? okay he's in this way more than I thought he would be nice yeah, well, in this, in this information-driven world that we live in, a surprise, ladies and gents, is very well received. So there we go. Uh, three amigos, entertain yourself with some good old-fashioned comedy. Film four, 4.50pm on Monday. So if you're finishing work early on that day, go and sit down, relax with a nice nice little glass of something, maybe a cup of tea, and go and enjoy some three amigos there. When we come back, we're going to be continuing on with your movies on TV. And now it's time for a segment we like to call Off Screen Pays the Bills. Hey, Bex. Oh, hey, Van. What's going down? Hey, nothing going down but the rent, but you know me, I like to keep on smiling. Oh, yes. And you know what? What a pearly white smile you have as well. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank you. It's nice, nice that you notice. I, I, do you know what? I, I'm one of those people I like to put a lot of work in. Do you, do, you, do you put a lot of work in there? Do you, do, you, do you work on your smile a lot? I do. I do to some extent. Do you know what, though? I have more of an issue just generally with my teeth where... I find that I grind them at night, particularly I found more so during COVID. Stress, anxiety, all that kind of stuff, it plays out on your body. And I find sometimes I'm having that playing out on my teeth. Exactly. Well, you know what? You're not alone. So apparently there are 40 million other people that do, be it down to stress, anxiety, abnormal bites. Chronic teeth grinding apparently can lead to worn enamel, tooth decay, sleeplessness. You know, mm-hmm. that's not an uncommon thing these days. And of course, expensive dental procedures to, you know, correct it. So the uh, number one teeth grinding prevention method apparently recommended by dentists is a custom fitted night guard, which is generally speaking quite a costly process to, to our American yeah. customers. This can cost like two or $300 per guard and you'll grind your way through them apparently as well at the rate of several per year so apparently 
a much better option is to use our sponsor for this week, the wonderful Smile Brilliant, who have this lab direct process where you get the same custom fitted night guards for as little as $45 per wow. guard. That's a hell of a bargain, isn't it? Custom fitted whitening trays available as well. You can get a, a, a Carry Pro electric toothbrush on there. And the best part is our listeners can get 30% off at checkout by going to smilebrilliant.com and using the code OFFSCREEN at checkout for 30 entire percent off. So once again, that's smilebrilliant.com and use the code off screen at checkout. I think that's worth a look back. What do you think? Uh, 100% because I am one of those people that has one of those expense or had one of those expensive guards. No more. I'm going to go to Smile Brilliant. Looking to stay in the loop with the latest movie news? Then say hello to The Daily Reel, your bite-sized hit of the biggest happenings, hirings, firings, release dates, scandals, and everything else going on behind the silver screen. Delivered to your ears every weekday morning in less time than you'll spend in the shower. Subscribe to The Daily Reel on all major podcast platforms or ask Alexa to install The Daily Reel skill for your morning flash briefing. Make your morning cinematic with The Daily Reel. Welcome back to Offscreen. We're keeping you on your couch, hopefully not for too much longer, but definitely for this week. And we are continuing with your selection of movies on TV. And you know what? We've been taking you back, way back, with some um, golden oldies like The Three Amigos. We've got more of those to come. But actually, what we're doing here with our next movie is is trying to take you back, or at least J.J. Abrams is trying to take you back to kind of that Amblin, early 80s, E.T. kind of movie yeah. with uh, Super 8, which is on film for 6.45 p.m. on Tuesday. I was so excited for this movie. I went and got the poster. I was like, it looks like my childhood. This is exciting. That this was this was a real case. I mean, first of all, Super Eight has got so much to answer for as regards our contemporary pop culture, because like so much of like you know cult fandom has been generated solely from Super Eight, which itself is this nostalgic throwback piece. Super Eight comes out not long before, or at least during the development of Stranger Things, yeah. and then has a sort of a knock-on effect with Stranger Things, which then has a sort of a knock-on effect with it which then has a source of a knock-on effect with New Mutants as well. Obviously, you remember that one. And so there is this sort of domino effect that comes out of Super 8, in which you effectively have the Amblin-y setup of a sort of Goonies-like squad of pre-teens on their BMXs in the 1980s, happening upon the great government conspiracy that, you know, the, the, the mysterious town finds itself falling under and, you know, only they can BMX ride their way. <laughs> around and of course it's got Carl Chandler in it hasn't it obviously um, naturally it's got to have Carl Chandler in there and Elle Fanning isn't it Elle Fanning's in it as well yeah. I think Elle Fanning I think Elle Fanning is the token sort of tween pixie dream girl figure in this one yes yeah. the role usually given to Millie Bobby Brown now yeah I don't know about you Van but I wish this film was better than it is <laughs> <laughs> I I wish it was slightly better, but then again, I've never gotten into this mystery box school of filmmaking that J.J. Abrams seems to have sort of pioneered. This this idea of no, no, here's no, a black poster. Pioneered. You can't say the word pioneered. Revisited. Weaponized. Yeah. Weaponized. Fine. Would Fine. be the time. Because this was the thing. 
Shyamalan used to just give you a concept and say, right, I'm going to mystery box the end of the film. That's my shtick. J.J. Abrams was, here's a black poster. The white text through the middle says, film title, a J.J. Abrams film. What's it about? You'll have to turn up on opening day. What's going to happen in it? You'll have to turn up on opening day. Who's in it? You'll have to turn up on opening day. What's it about? We don't know. Just just turn up on opening day and then you'd go and it would just be like, you know. What do you think, he, what do you think he's better at? Making a film or marketing a film? <laughs> <laughs> That's the question. I, I would argue that J.J. Abrams, although a very solid filmmaker, don't get me wrong, he can make a film. I just don't think he should be allowed to write them anymore or be involved in the writing of them anymore. I know he has his go-to guys, but, you know, he's a hands-on producer. Let's be honest, Abrams has more or less written these scripts. I think J.J. Abrams should be a director and should not be involved in any way in the writing of his movies. That just feels like my thing. Yeah. I feel like he should be kept away. Super 8, though, as far as J.J. Abrams' cut price version of Stranger Things goes, even though it came first, I agree. It's all right. It's just not Stranger Things. Stranger yeah, Things exactly. It's not Stranger Things. It's not the Goonies. It sits in this weird grey area in between where you kind of have that high anticipation and then that slight meh letdown with it, which yeah. is a shame because it's got all the components that would make it brilliant. But you know what? This is relatively the early days for J.J. Abrams. You know, this is where we were just discovering him post-Coverfield. It's all that kind of era and the expectations really were high. And I think when he stepped into the world of mm. Star Wars, that's when we suddenly went, wow, he can... I was, I was actually a very big proponent of J.J. Abrams on Star Trek. Like, because I actually did... I was a very big believer that Abrams was what we needed in Star Trek. That Abrams, you know, regardless of the mystery box nonsense, which I I hate him doing it, it's a one-trick thing, stop doing it, please. Just write a story at some point. But I will admit that Star Trek did benefit very heavily from the energy that he brought to it. And, all right, we lost that a little bit when he then upped sticks and went straight off to work for Star Wars, which had quite clearly been his dream job all along anyway. But I think the Star Wars franchise today is better off because of J.J. We, we, you know, J.J. Abrams, he's left a legacy that Discovery is still continuing now. Yeah, I'm with you. I'm with you. So, guys, get back to the early days of J.J. Abrams with Super 8. You might love it. You might not love it as much as you think you're going to love it, but it's well worth a watch regardless because <laughs> it obviously, as Van mentioned, provided that domino effect for much better film and TV series to come. Um, so that's 6.45 film for on Tuesday. Oh, we're going way back now. 1980, Raging Bull on Film 4 again, 11.05pm on Wednesday. I mean, talk about like a masterpiece. This is, you know, this is the, the what, apart from Rocky, you know, this is the, when you think of a sporting movie, it's either Raging Bull or Rocky, isn't it? It's 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 one of the two boxing movies, isn't it? If, you, yeah. if someone says boxing movie, you you will think of either Rocky or Raging Bull. Yeah. It is it is either one of those two films. It's it, it's just in that way. It's like how if someone says hockey movie and you think of anything other than a, than a Mighty Ducks movie, you are dead inside and have no earthly business watching films. But uh, Rocky or Raging Bull for boxing movies definitely or Happy Gilmore. Do you Gilmore have a preference? Do you have a preference for two? I do I have a preference. I'm a Rocky guy. But that's only because, obviously, I've been a film student and I've had the work of Scorsese rammed down my throat until I can't... I, I, I respect Scorsese. I've just, I've just had a bit, in, bit of enough of him, to yeah. be honest. Like, I like having a break from Scorsese, to be honest. So yeah. I like to... I, whereas Rocky, I can revisit the fun. I can watch Rocky 4 over and over. I think Rocky has the more commercial appeal... Mm. 
that's less brooding, even though it tries to be brooding, but it works in so many. It's it, it's the eighties. It like that Rocky embodies the eighties, which I think is something that is really you and I are really passionate mm, about. Yeah. I'm with you on it. I, I'm more of a Rocky fan than I am Raging Bull, but I I appreciate it. For Scorsese's work, for me, it's more when he does his gangstery stuff later on. That's when it works. But that's the thing, isn't it? Because Scorsese's work on Raging Bull is part of the reason that Raging Bull is as overexposed as it is, is because it is the masterwork. It's one of the masterworks of how to construct a film. A lot of it is, look at the simplicity of this shot, but look how much it resonates. Look at the power drawn from this incredibly straightforward, simplistic, but incredibly well-framed image. Look at the the power of the edit. Look at the movement of the music, and then look how it's all tied together with this wonderful 50-50 balance between you know the precision and the mind of Scorsese and that incredibly nuanced De Niro performance. De Niro, who you know, we, we tend to forget, to forget about uh, Raging Bull as a sort of a, a body transformation movie, but it was one of those role, one of those yeah. roles. Yeah. The kind of thing that we now associate more with, you know, De, with Gary Oldman doing whenever he wants an Oscar nomination or something like that. And you know, I you know how much I hate to use that T word, but this was one of the first transformative performances, I would say, if you're going with the, the physical definition of that, which I'm told that certain idiots do. I think it's a genuine masterpiece. Um, I don't think it's Scorsese's best film, but that is down to personal preference. I can whittle my favourite Scorsese films down to a, a top 20, and I can't say that about many directors. Yeah, yeah, no, I'm with you, I'm with you. So, guys... We don't need to say much more about Jake LaMotta and the story <laughs> of his rise. Um, but Raging Bull is there for you. It's there for you on Film 4, 11.05pm. If you haven't watched it in years, remind yourself what a masterpiece looks like and go and revisit that on Wednesday night. Speaking of masterpieces, uh, moving yeah. on to Thursday. Um, this is one where, you know, when, when, when you get sent the list of what we might want to talk about on movies on TV, I said to Van... I said, you know what, even before you text me what your possible preference would be, I had already written this one in because I knew. I think I know yeah. you way too well now. Uh, Starship Troopers, Sony Movies, 9pm. Could you get a more Van movie? <laughs> Starship Troopers, would you like to know more? It is one of my favourite ever movies. So um, Starship Troopers, which is based on the novel by uh, Robert Heinlein, which I think is the Starship Troopers, or Robert Heinlein, Robert Heinlein Starship Troopers originally, um, which is a very different novel to what you get in the film. The film has been reworked by Ed Neumeyer and... Uh, 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 Paul Verhoeven very much fits into the same canon as movies such as uh, Robocop, Total Recall, the general Paul Verhoeven filmography. This, this sits very snugly in there. There's a lot of very similar tropes to Robocop in terms of its, its exploration of fascism, its very satirical bent. In this case, we have a very fascistically bent version of the human race around the, around the year 2063, I think, because this came out around the same time as Star Trek First Contact, which is set in the same year and uh, sees the Earth come under attack by the Arachnids, who launch devastating attacks on, uh, starting with Buenos Aires and then different places around the, around the Earth, leading to a propaganda-driven conflict in which the youth of the day must enlist to defend the mighty human race, led by none other than Casper Van Dien and Denise Richards as Johnny Rico and Carmen Vasquez, who we follow respectively from their high school years all the way through the war itself. 
Naked force has resolved more issues throughout history than any other factor. The contrary opinion, that violence never solves anything, is wishful thinking at its worst. People who forget that always pay. Rico, what's the moral difference, if any, between a civilian and a citizen? A citizen accepts personal responsibility for the safety of the body politic, defending it with his life. A civilian does not. The exact words of the text. But do you understand it? Do you believe it? I don't know. Of course you don't. I doubt anyone here would recognize civic virtue if it reached up and bit you in the ass. I think I've spoken to you about this before. Casper Van, Van Dien, right? This is like his one movie. And then we know him because we watched that documentary on... <laughs> The, what is it, the cult that we, what is it called? Because of the Nixium cult? Nixium cult. And the, yeah. he is the husband of the woman who, who started, you know, whose daughter. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, that's, that's where his resurgence as an actor is coming back. Well, first of, first of all, as well, I think it is unfair to dismiss young Mr. Van Dien because he was also the romantic foil in Tim Burton's Sleepy Hollow and he never gets the credit for that. Poor, poor Casper Van Dien. He's the guy that was trying to win the affection of Christina Ricci that Johnny Depp just swooped in and slapped aside. Um, he's also in. He also shot as the character played by uh, Christian Bale in American Psycho for the sequel, Rules of Attraction. He plays Patrick Bateman in Rules of Attraction, but his material scenes are cut from the finished film. They are on the DVD, however. Um, I will say this. I saw, I saw Starship Troopers for the first time when I was 14 years old, and it blew my mind. It was a great year for action movies. Uh, Con Air was out. Face Off was out. It, it was just a good time. Uh, I recommended this movie to my girlfriend's 14-year-old son. And I said, just watch this. I will show you what a movie was like when I was your age. This is Starship Troopers. And I asked him this morning, because uh, it's his birthday and he's stuck home with COVID. So I asked him, like, I'm going to talk about Starship Troopers. I want to ask your opinion. And his response was, seven and a half out of ten, mostly because of boobs. <laughs> so... I'm going to let that... I mean, I think it's a great hyper-visceral, hyper-violent satire on fascism and conflict, but seven and a half out of ten because of boobs, that works just as well. Thank you, Jason. The the youth of today. What could you say? We view it in very, very different ways. Well, there we go. That, that, That is kind of... Tipping over the edge for uh, for the weekend uh, for the end of the week for you, but it's not all that we've got for you, is it, Van? Because a Friday night wouldn't be a Friday night without some sort of Mel Gibson directed and starring in movie uh, from maybe 1995. <laughs> um, you can take our lives, but you never take our freedom. This is, of course, Braveheart. I wasn't going to do the Scottish accent for you. It's on five star. It's on at nine pm. Perfect timing for this, and it's brilliant, isn't it? Fight and you may die. Run, and you'll live. At least a while. I'm dying in your beds many years from now. Would you be willing to trade all the days from this day to that for one chance, just one chance, to come back here and tell our enemies that they may take our lives, but they'll never take... Oh, freedom!
Yes, I lip sync to it. Of course I do. How, how could I not? <laughs> but you know, it, it is such a timeless movie, Braveheart. I, I, it's a movie that holds up as well. It's a movie that's... Uh, I, even for all its mistakes, we, we forget now, for instance, just how weird that accent was the first time you heard Mel Gibson doing a Scottish <laughs> accent. Um, a lot of the actors who are in Braveheart have only really come into their own, professionally speaking, in the last 10 years. Think, for instance, of Brendan Gleeson, mm-hmm. for example, who's only really become a respected character actor in the last 15 years. James Cosmo, as well, is a very good example. I don't want to talk about Angus McFadden because he, he went on to make his own really awful sequel to this movie, um, which was Robert the Bruce, with the less said about the better. But you know what? This oh, was I've a damn good that. movie. I've seen, You've seen that. that. We reviewed it. We reviewed it. It yes. was awful. Yes. Yes. I remember. This, however... I can watch this. Yeah, this is a classic. And it's got one of the most iconic lines in movies, you know? Like, it's, there's so much about this. And whatever you think of Mel Gibson as an auteur or someone who, you know, who has stepped in and done a brilliant directing job and taken the lead role in this is incredible. I can't remember if it picked up. What, I think it did, it did It did. win an Oscar, I think. Did it win Best Picture? It didn't win Best Picture, did it? I'm not sure. I must check it, though. Um, I will I will find out if it, um, yeah, if it won Best Picture. I'm sure it did. Um, but it's such a brilliant movie in itself, in, in every right. Um, and- Absolutely. And the best part is it's on at the perfect time as well. So Friday night at 9pm on Five Star means you can start watching this, probably be done just after midnight. So it's kind of the perfect sort of end of week movie just for its timing, really. Yeah, and you are very welcome that I picked that one and not Van. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be back uh, with more movies that are available for you for streaming in just a second. And one of them has got a very exciting Oscar contender in it. Welcome back for one last ride off screen. And as there's nothing on DVD this week, because, well, I mean, the human race is just running out of movies for uh, dot, dot, dot reasons. Um, we're going straight to streaming, because streaming is the future, evidently, according to the success of Godzilla vs. Kong. <laughs> I cannot get over that that movie made just made, made pretty much as much in cinemas, despite the fact... You're on mute, by the way, Bex. That that movie made as much in cinemas, despite the fact that you could have streamed it at home at the same time. Does that not kind of make that argument once and for all? I think it was really good that I was on mute then. I had a few things to say. Probably don't want to hear it. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, the, the, it, I think this this seismic shift in the world that we're in at the moment mm. will have a seismic shift on cinema. We've just released, we, we've just received a press release as well saying that UK audiences, the majority are, are eager to go back to cinemas. However, I would love to see what sample they took for that because yeah. it's a dwindling... Uh, you know, uh, entertainment opportunity for people anyway, which is a shame, but it's the truth. Well, put it this way: I watched I watched Godzilla vs Kong on a 105 inch screen in my living room, thanks to a very shiny new projector that I picked up. And even I came away from that thinking, God, I would have slayed on an IMAX screen. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> it's just that good. I'm sorry, but there are certain movies you can watch at home that you just can't. That, that, you know, that, that that are fine. But then there are ones that you see, just like that would have been so much better in the cinema. You think I want to watch Black Widow at home? Hell no! I want to see that in the cinema. I want to see Fast Nine in the cinema. But do you think I want to see? Let's just say hypothetically the next Nicolas Cage movie 
in a cinema? No, not necessarily. I'd rather see that at home, where I can you know, be properly drunk and enjoy it the, the best possible way. But let's talk about movies that we're watching at home, though, in the meanwhile, because streaming's bringing us some. One that's not being screened, uh, streamed, uh, screened for critics on streaming, funnily enough. And this is from Netflix, and this is out today, Friday the 9th. This is on Netflix. This is Melissa McCarthy and Octavia Spencer's new movie, Thunder Force. Have you seen the trailer for this thing? I I think I have. And I think yeah. we were a bit sort of like, this because this, yeah. is, this is produced with her husband again. It's another one of, yeah. Yeah, yeah it's one of the McCarthy Falcone uh, it works, yeah. One of one of the works of the McCarthy Falcone collection, yeah. in which you know Ben Falcone. I think he has an appearance in the trailers. So I don't know if he's directed this one, but it's just basically it's the usual. It's it's you know kind of a bumbling, sort of sub stoner kind of always the spinster comedy starring Melissa McCarthy. Only this time she's got superpowers. Last time she was an internet. Con- last time she had an AI. Yeah. Yeah. This time she's got superpowers. So. Same movie, different gimmick. Yeah, that I I don't know. I like that. I like Melissa McCarthy, but I yeah. like her more so when she's play, She's in other people's films. I think. I think yes. that, that's the way I kind of view her portfolio. <laughs> Do you know what it is for me actually with Melissa McCarthy? I prefer Melissa McCarthy when she plays smarter. Mm. That's my issue. With, I I mean I I know that Melissa McCarthy can play dumb. Because the majority of her movies do have her as the bumbling, clumsy, you know, accident-prone, the the dummy cat. But it is, it is too easy. It, it, it's it, like she can walk that. We know she can do it. It's when she plays smarter. It's, it's what say what you will about bridesmaids, but her character in bridesmaids is at any given point the smartest person in the room, and that's why she's so funny. But yeah. uh, I'd like to see more of that from. It's like Spy. Half the fun of Spy was that she was the smartest person in the room. But, yeah, anyway. Also on streaming, so Sunday, the 11th. One that I know you like. Tell me something, boy. <laughs> <laughs> you had to take it there, huh? You had to take it right there, perfect. <laughs> I was I was hoping you, I could catch your attention so I could just literally lead in with that. But do we need to say anything else? I think that was just Gargar-esque rendition. You know? Just do the clip. Let's just do the clip. Okay. Can I ask you a personal question? Do you write songs or anything? I don't sing my own songs. Why? I just, I just don't feel comfortable. Why wouldn't you feel comfortable? Well, because like almost every single person that I've come in contact with in the music industry has told me that my nose is too big and that I won't make it. Your nose is beautiful. You showing me your nose right now? Yeah. You don't have to show it to me. I've been looking at it all night. Oh come on. Oh, I'm no, gonna be thinking not. about your nose for a very you're long. You're full of. I'm not full of. I'm telling you the truth. Yeah, you're full of. Touch your nose. Oh my gosh. Let me just touch it for a second. So the world went gaga for gaga with this, right? I did. But actually, step back. Bradley Cooper was so brilliant in this movie. That's the thing I have with with A Star Is Born. I think a lot of attention went to Gaga because I think it's because we were so used to the Madonna archetype of the you know the the, the white pop star lady becomes or in this case Italian American pop star lady as well becomes the uh, the actress gives acting a go and it's going to be awful. That the fact that Gaga was actually good was shocking to us. I think. Yeah, I sorry. I thought you were comparing this to Suddenly Susan. I was a bit... Oh no, I'm, I'm thinking about things like the next best 
thing and yeah. garbage like that. Remember that? Remember when Madonna started the next best thing with Rupert Everett? Yeah. Good Lord, that was terrible. But that's the thing, though. Bradley Cooper not only directed this, took this over from Clint Eastwood, who I think was going to direct it for Beyonce. Yeah. And then... Ooh, wow. Uh, Terrible. Very, di- very so different movie, play. right? Mm. Yeah, very, very different movie. But uh, Cooper's performance in this, like, you can literally, you could smell that bourbon seeping through his pores, can't you? Yeah, he, oh, he's so gritty and brilliant in this, and he can sing. Like, if anyone was thinking, wow, Gaga can sing, but she can act. It's like, wow, Bradley Cooper can act, but he can sing. Cooper's so good at the one point in this movie, I smelt his urine, and that was in the best possible way. And you can find out if you don't know what that means you can find out firsthand or for the <laughs> sniff on sunday on netflix all of our movies this week are courtesy of netflix one that's up for some oscar love yeah uh this yeah. this next month uh on monday i mean it could be a bafta winner by then it can be a bafta winner we don't know uh but riz ahmed is up for best actor for this for sound of metal which comes to netflix on monday the 12th in which he's the uh, he's the recovering heroin addict drummer who starts to lose his hearing and he's checked into rehab, has to reacquaint himself with his senses or risk facing a relapse. Olivia Cook's in this as well. I hear very good things about her. But it's all about that performance from Riz Ahmed. We've been fans of Riz Ahmed for a long time. In my, in my case, going back to Four Lions, I think. I was just going to say Four Lions. Yeah, he's mm. so great. I think we've interviewed him a few times as well. Lovely bloke as well. He's just... Every uh, this is well deserved, and you know what? Like in terms of the wide open Oscar race that's going on just in general at the moment, um, you know, when you're looking at someone like him and Daniel Kaluuya, like you know, this could be a really great year finally of diversity for something like the Oscars if they just pick the right performances. <laughs> could be. You know, if you don't follow the politics and ju- and the campaigning, and you just do it on merit. They're gonna pick the right people. However, if I just well, I'll, I'll cut through the politics. If, some, if anyone doesn't follow the politics, let's let's cut through the politics. Uh, Hollywood is run by old white people. That's that's the film yeah. industry. Old white people run the film industry. It's just how it goes. So unfortunately, they seem to be incredibly. Mm, what's the opposite of progressive? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I mean, it's all well and good. We celebrate the fact this year will be the first time that two women have been up for Best Director. Do you know how many women ever have been up for Best Director? Though? It's, it's single figures, isn't it? It's seven. Yeah. yeah. Of these two, they make number six and seven ever. And Catherine Bigelow can only be nominated so many times. I know, I know. It's appalling. And and to be honest, there is a. I, I, I have, I've have said this a few times... I'm really not that interested in the Oscar race this year. I really It's not it's not because they are the films that we would have expected if we if you'd asked us 6 to 8 months ago to name the Oscar the Oscar films for this year. We probably could have looked at the release list and who was directing and who was starring in what. It's so and probably had a vague idea. Like we would have known the father sight unseen we would have known the father would be up for awards for instance because oh it's Yorgos Lantimos Anthony Hopkins Olivia Colman of course that's up for us we know and we know it's going to be up for this category and this category and this category we knew these films Nomadland yeah. just by virtue of having uh, 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 virtue of Francis McDormand we, we knew for instance would be up for I'm glad uh, Chloe Zhao's been, up, been put up for uh, Best Director I, I'm glad Emerald Fennell has been put up for Best Director even though and I don't want to get into it until next week I'm saving it for next week Vex because I know we're going to have so much fun but you know it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a noteworthy film if nothing else 
and I'm sure we can talk about next week. And I have a lot of research that's going to back your argument if, if it works for next week. Because I'm, I'm not giving it any more of my time. <laughs> that's fair. That's absolutely fair. But so let's talk about a film that I haven't given any of my time to. This is our last one for streaming this week. I haven't given any of my time to this. I'm going to, though, because it involves Nicolas Cage. Yeah. You know how I feel. You know how I feel yeah. about Nicky Cage. Is, is this is this wham-bam Nicky Cage or is this serious Nicky Cage? I mean, the I'm top hoping, is the best wham-bam. <laughs> yeah, it is. I, I'm hoping this is full-blown outcast mode, Nicholas. Did you ever see Outcast with Nicholas Cage and Hayden Christensen where no. they were knights from the Crusades and Nicholas Cage had long tied back hair, a scar through his eye and spoke like an old pirate because he thought that was an English accent. What brings you here, lad? <laughs> This is Nicolas Cage, like that, versus Aliens, and the movie's called Jiu-Jitsu. I mean, mean, he's got like four scenes, apparently. He shot like two days on this thing. I'm sure they gave him like 10 mil for it. I mean... This is on Netflix. He's only in two scenes. Who else is in it? It seems to be a largely unknown cast. I know that there's a, there's a, a, a cast made up of like young stunt performers and, and you know, so, uh, action choreographers. I know Alan Musai, who's the lead of the current uh, sort of regenerated kickboxer franchise, is in it. Rick Yoon, who was a Bond villain, is in there. And I know that Tony Jaa has a small role in it with uh, Frank Grillo. So it does seem like it is a, a has been put over to sort of you know your Scott Adkins level action stars mm, yeah so that level your direct I mean, your, your director DVD action fans will know most of the cast of this movie. I really hope that that Nicolas Cage is like the sensei or something in there. I believe he is. I believe he is the sort of master splinter figure in this okay. definitely. Brilliant. I'm sold. What a way to end the show. This is amazing. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, you know, you can't get better than ending a show on, on Nicolas Cage, to be honest. No, not at all, not at all. But next week we will, finally, Miss Perfect, you and I be having that long overdue discussion on Promising Young Woman. We will also get the return of one of my favourite directors of the last 20 years, uh, British filmmaker Neil Marshall, who, of course, brought us Dog Soldiers, The Descent, Doomsday, Centurion, and most notably, the recent reboot of Hellboy. He's back next week with The Reckoning, so we'll get to talk about that next week alongside Promising Young Woman. So either way, I sense it's going to be a very passionate episode next week. I'm just going to clarify. I don't think it's a terrible film, okay? Mm -hmm. I just don't think it deserves what it's getting. I'm going to leave you with that. That's fine. That is absolutely fine. And you know what? We'll have it out next week, Miss Perfect. So until then, this has been off screen. I've been Ben Connor. And I've been Bex Perfect. And we shall return. <laughs>